According to the Jewish sages, the name Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, is a combination of the words Shalem, which means peace, and Yirah, which means awe, reverence, fear of God. Fear of God, an acknowledgement of the biblical moral vision, precedes the possibility of true enduring world peace. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 127, The Ununited Nations. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1982, New York City's Mayor Ed Koch angrily ignited one of the many controversies that marked his mayoralty. The target of his honor's ire was the United Nations on New York's Upper East Side, which, even more than usual, had heaped utterly unfair opprobrium on the state of Israel and its premier Menachem Begin. Thus, the New York Times headline read, Koch, angry at UN, would alter Isaiah Wall. The mayor noticed that on First Avenue, across the street from the UN General Assembly, sits what is known as the Isaiah Wall. Inscribed on the structure in large ornate letters are the words of the Hebrew prophet that gave it its name, words we have already studied. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. These sentences are, as we have seen, part of Isaiah's prediction of the Acharit Yamim, the end of days. The mayor thus noted that the presence of the Isaiah Wall across from the UN embodied an egregious irony. Rather than a world at peace celebrating Jerusalem, in the UN tyrants are welcomed, and Israel's historic connection to Jerusalem is often denied. The Times reported how Mayor Koch said that his intention was to add to the Isaiah Wall words that referred to, quote, hypocrisy, immorality, and cowardice, end quote. I, for one, ladies and gentlemen, think this was a pretty good idea. But the truth is that there are other verses that appear in Isaiah that may have done the job as well. Verses that embody a warning to tyrannies. Verses that are followed with one of the most astonishing descriptions in Isaiah of a time of peace. After his early descriptions of the Messianic age, Isaiah turns over the next many chapters to the various nations that assaulted and will assault Judah and Jerusalem, promising their ultimate undoing. In chapters 13 and 14, Isaiah speaks in God's name of the empire of Babel, which he knows will one day attack Jerusalem. Here is 13 verses 11, 17, and 19, and 14 verses 4 and 5. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Behold, I will stir up the meads against them which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Chapters 15 and 16 discuss Moab with the final conclusion, The glory of Moab shall be condemned with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. Then the prophet, at the beginning of chapter 17, turns to Damascus, which, as we have seen, had led an assault on Jerusalem. The burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. What is striking is that throughout these chapters, Isaiah speaks of enemies of Jerusalem of the past, like Damascus, and superpowers that will only threaten Jerusalem several generations later, like Babylon, with Isaiah even foreseeing the conquest of Babel by Persia and the Medes. These chapters are themselves, therefore, a reflection on the rise and fall of world powers throughout the ages and throughout the eternity of the Jews. 
and it is a warning against those past and present that have sought the destruction of God's covenantal people. Mark Twain, pondering the mysterious endurance of the Jewish people, once reflected as follows, quote, The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but have burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? End quote. Isaiah, in these chapters, inspires us to reflect on the secret of the immortality of the Jewish people. But then suddenly, a messianic vision emerges again in chapter 18 along with a verse heralding the God of history, whose providential plan for the Messianic age will ultimately unfold, a verse which we read on Rosh Hashanah. Verse 3. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the earth see when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a shofar, hear ye. And then in chapter 19, we have an incredible eschatological exclamation, one of the most surprising verses in the entire Tanakh. Whereas Isaiah has warned, of all that would befall the countries and empires that assault Israel, that oppress it, that seek to destroy Jerusalem, Isaiah also informs us of an ultimate messianic age. And, as we have seen, Isaiah asserts that the messianic age could even arrive during the reign of Hezekiah himself. And, Isaiah tells us, in this redemptive period, when it comes, then even once enemies of Israel will not only make peace, but will develop their own covenantal relationships with God similar to that which Israel has with God. Chapter 19, verse 23. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. As Rabbi Yigal Ariel notes, at first blush, these verses are incredibly shocking. Ancient Egypt, which once enslaved God's people, can also be called by God, my people. Assyria, one of Israel's greatest enemies, can one day have a special relationship with the Almighty. But that is precisely what Isaiah is saying, and we must unpack it in all its fascinating profundity. First, Israel does not envision and has never envisioned ruling the nations around it. As Rabbi Sachs has written, what we see from this is that, quote, the Israelites never aspired to be in Egypt, a colossus, a superpower, end quote. And Rabbi Sachs adds that this allows us to further appreciate how unfair the attacks on modern Israel are today. Rabbi Sachs writes further, quote, that is why it is so ironic that Israel should be called an imperialist power. Israel is the only nation to have ruled the land in the past 4,000 years that has not been an empire and never sought to become one. Israel has been ruled by many empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Ptolemies, Seleucids, and Romans, the Byzantines, Umayyads, Abbasids, Fatimids, Crusaders, Mamluks, and Ottomans. The only non-imperial power to rule the land was and is Israel, end quote. In Isaiah's vision of the end of days, nations each come to have a covenantal relationship with the Almighty. 
The prophet stresses that the redemption of the world does not mean that all non-Jews will become part of the Jewish people. Rather, Jewish eschatology envisions an age in which, in the words of another prophet, the Lord is one and his name one. But countries remain numerous. Nations remain numerous. Jewish eschatology, writes the political philosopher Daniel Elazar, depicts, quote, what properly may be termed a world confederation of God-fearing nations, federated through their common acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and dominion, with Jerusalem, where all go up to worship God as its seat, end quote. In other words, this vision is the exact opposite of John Lennon, whose song Imagine speaks of a world with no religions and no countries, where for Lennon, then there would be people living life in peace. This is not the Jewish vision. Judaism believes that one day God will covenant with the nations of the world as God covenanted with Abraham's children, and that world peace will be achieved when separate nations will be linked by an awe and reverence for the God who dwells in Jerusalem. But this vision of a world at peace is presented by Isaiah after he issues his warnings of the destruction of tyrannies and of those that wrongly assaulted Jerusalem. The message here is critical. According to the Jewish sages, the name Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, is a combination of the words Shalem, which means peace, and Yirah, which means awe, reverence, fear of God. The meaning of this midrash, perhaps, is that Jerusalem embodies the notion that Yirah precedes Shalem. Fear of God, an acknowledgement of the biblical moral vision, precedes the possibility of true enduring world peace. Only when fear of heaven is everywhere will peace be everywhere. It is this understanding, it must be said, that was missing from the original vision that brought the United Nations into being. In the first week of January 1941, in the State of the Union, Roosevelt delivered one of his most famous speeches when he spoke of four freedoms, with the fourth being, in Roosevelt's words, quote, freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world, end quote. These were Roosevelt's words, and he added that, quote, that is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation, end quote. That is what Roosevelt said, that in his own time he believed that an end to fear could be attained. In this speech, Roosevelt's vision of the United Nations was born. This was Roosevelt's hope for a post-war world, which he believed that he could achieve through a partnership with Britain and Russia. There is, of course, from a Jewish perspective, a tragic irony to this speech. While Roosevelt rightly prepared America to sustain Britain and ultimately enter the war, at the same time as Raphael Medoff has shown, it was this president who spoke about freedom from fear, who did not work to save those who had the most to fear, which was the Jews of Europe. Isaiah's vision that we study now speaks first of the tyrannies that had assaulted Israel, and then speaks of an enduring world peace. And the biblical vision has always been that fear of heaven precedes the possibility of true freedom from fear. It is all the more incredible, then, that Roosevelt, for all his political and diplomatic skills, seemed to feel that his utopian vision of the four freedoms could be achieved in partnership with the Soviets, with a regime that was founded on the rejection of fear of heaven. The Hoover Institution's historian, Arnold Beichman notes that Roosevelt's close confidant Harry Hopkins, describing the meeting at Yalta, reflected that, quote, in our hearts we really believed that a new day had dawned, the day we had for so many years longed for and about which we had talked so much. 
We were all convinced we had won the first great victory for peace. And when I say we, I mean all of us, all civilized mankind. The Russians had proved that they would be reasonable and farsighted, and neither the president nor any one of us had the slightest doubt that we could live with them and get on peaceably with them far into the future, end quote. And Beichmann further notes that FDR himself said about Stalin, quote, I think that if I give him everything that I possibly can and ask nothing from him in return, noblesse oblige, he won't try to annex anything and will work for a world of democracy and peace, end quote. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, without the foundation of Yirah, fear of heaven, what followed the Nazis was the rise of another evil tyranny that dominated much of Europe and ruled by fear. Jews throughout history were not free from fear, but Jews throughout history declared that one day fear of the Lord would spread around the earth. All would turn to the God who dwelled in Jerusalem, and then, and only then, would freedom from fear truly occur. This past week, the Jerusalem Post reported how, quote, the United Nations General Assembly approved a resolution 129 to 11 on Wednesday that disavowed Jewish ties to the Temple Mount, end quote. And that speaking to the assembly before the vote, Israel's ambassador Gilad Erdan correctly noted that, quote, a resolution about Jerusalem that does not refer to its ancient Jewish roots is not an ignorant mistake, but an attempt to distort and rewrite history, end quote. The Jerusalem Post further notes the terrible and exquisite irony that, quote, the vote took place on the fourth day of the Hanukkah festival in which Jews around the world celebrate the victory of the Maccabee warriors over the Greeks and the reclamation of the ancient Jewish temple in 164 BCE, end quote. The United Nations is to this day a place where Jewish history is denied, where Jewish rights are denied, where truth itself is denied. The words on the Isaiah wall have yet to be fulfilled, and Jews in this world certainly have not yet achieved freedom from fear. But, as we will see further in our study of this biblical book, many of Isaiah's words about a Jewish return and flourishing in the Holy Land have already come true. As such, Isaiah's other prophecies still stand as a warning to tyrannies, and Jews will continue to read his words with reverence and yearn for further fulfillment of all that he tells us is yet to be. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.